Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 20 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, June the 16th. First, I'll be talking to filmmaker Michael Budd from Amazing People Pictures, who will talk about how he managed film production during the pandemic. And I'll be talking to ComSec Chief Economist Craig James about market trends for the week. But now, let's talk to Michael Budd. Well, Michael, you're a COVID business warrior. Your production company, Amazing People Pictures, has worked through the pandemic with all the logistical issues and production cuts, how has that affected the film industry? Well, I think the way it's affected the film industry is that it has made it more difficult to shoot a film during COVID with all the uh, insecurity around borders and travelling and, and, and international guests and things of this nature. It, it's also become challenging in the financial sense that you have to incorporate all these additional safety measures uh, you know you've got to have deep cleaning if you're if you're actually uh, shooting in a venue you've got to uh, have that additional cost you've got to have COVID marshals on hand at all times you've got to also you know sanitize face masks you can only get on the set one way you can only come off the set one way which slows you down You've got to keep this distance between each other and, and people that know the film business know that, you know, a director, a producer, an actor, cinematographer, they need to work quite closely to achieve the day-to-day work. So, so it does make it very challenging. But at the end of the day, Australian crews are very resilient. They want to get back to work. They want to work. People want the economy to keep moving. And so, you know, with that resilience, we just get on with it. So all of that would add to lots of costs, wouldn't it? The, the costs do inflate, you know, they extrapolate quite a lot. As I mentioned earlier, there's all these additional costs involved in, in a COVID shoot, not to mention the, the time factors. If you bring somebody out, I was in the position where I was bringing an international star out, uh, Jane Seymour, OBE. She's got two Golden Globes, a primetime Emmy on the, and a star on the Hollywood Book of Fame. She's a, a woman who's been in the business for 50 years. And, you know, we ended up bringing her out. We weren't able to bring her into our own 
production bubble and stay at the hotel of uh, our choice. She she had to go and stay uh, in a hotel in, in Darling Harbour, which was fine because what comes first to us is the health and safety of, of people. So in that sense, you know, we brought her out, but she, she then had to isolate for 14 days. So we weren't able to rehearse. We weren't able to do all the normal things that we would do. So that was another additional cost and another step back. What initially happened to us is, is a sense that we were shooting in Queensland and the whole thing got shut down because of COVID. And then we lost a bunch of money because we had already started pretty much filming we had a, a production office up and running with 30 people in it and you know then the next thing you know uh, the borders are getting shut down and, and nobody knows what's happening so we brought the production back we isolated the production for a period of time and then we picked it back up again in New South Wales but the costs are the costs are there no doubt but as I mentioned earlier the safety and the well-being of, of, of staff and crew is the utmost importance and that always is going to come first. Well I'm just thinking of what the implications would have been for the film industry. I mean, you, they would have been shooting a film and suddenly they would have been struck with all these shutdowns and logistical challenges and they would have had to keep shooting the movie. That's 100% correct. I mean, there is a lot of uncertainty around filming. I mean, we, us here in Australia, we're in a fortunate position where the government has been reacting you know, really fast. We have a track and tracing. We have great information. New South Wales Health have been outstanding. And if you're talking about a safer place overall around the world to come to shoot, then this is the place to do it. I mean, Australia is one of the leading places to make a film. We have great, great production facilities. We have great studios here. I'm based in Sydney. I know Fox Studios in Sydney are great. I know Victoria are on the cusp of making additional changes and infrastructure changes to their studios. But there, there are there are additional costs in, in shooting a film in COVID no doubt, things I mentioned earlier are the protective measures of, of COVID marshals. There's the cleaning, there's the spacing, there's the bubble. You, you're actually tracking and tracing every member of your crew and your cast uh, daily. You can't have a situation where someone from your crew or cast goes outside of the filming bubble and interacts with another set of people because if there's a slight chance that they may be under a protocol, then that could filter all the way down to your production and, and halt you, costing you hundreds of thousands, you know, potentially millions of dollars. So it is a tricky thing to navigate indeed. I mean, when I think about the film industry generally worldwide, I mean, you say Australia's in a good position, but geez, how would that affect the film industry in places like the US, for example, which has been hit very hard by COVID? I mean, Jane Seymour, you know, was out here not long ago and she was talking about she's in an agency of 200 people and she was the only one working in the agency. She was she was in Spain before the shutdown and then she came to Australia to shoot this. I, I think now they're starting to get back to a little bit of work. A lot of them were going to Canada to shoot. That's the reality. UK was not shooting at all. It is, it is just a situation where the risks are just too high at the moment until, you know, the vaccinations have really rolled in for a lot of these countries. You're talking about countries that are, you know, having thousands upon thousands of cases you know on a weekly or daily basis so you just can't put your, your crew and cast at those sort of risks so I, I'm not 100% sure of the landscape in the US at the moment but I imagine that they are not shooting nearly as much as they would be over the last few years. It's also quite extraordinary I mean what this means for the entire film industry is that they have to completely rework. You do. Logistically, you do. I mean, of course. I mean, you're shooting in a space, you can't have a certain amount of people in there. You know, you've got to stick to these square rule meterages. You know, you've got to stay 1.5 away. 
that's a logistical thing uh, within itself. People that are from outside state can't really come to work with you. Uh, I mean, they can come. They've got to, they've got to isolate. You know, just the additional expenses, the food, the packaging. I mean, <laughs> packaging alone was absolutely epic. I mean, everybody had to have their own little box of food. You know, there was no. You know, we're used to film crews where we we have trucks, you know, food trucks, and we get our, like a production line, where we get our food trucks and we get our food on our plate and we move down the line and we go sit next to each other. No one's allowed to sit next to each other during a COVID shoot. Everyone goes and sits by themselves and they get a little box of food, which is all pre-packaged, pre-handled. There's great companies taking care of us for that sort of stuff, but these additional costs and ways of, of you know, and, and we'd even stagger food times. You know, we'd stagger the times where people would arrive on set so that, it wasn't a situation where we had a hundred people on set at once. We'd stagger it. And, you know, when we're eating food, that was just one of the many changes. Sanitizer everywhere, sanitizing, going around sanitizing, stopping to sanitize, mask checks, redoing the mask every half an hour to an hour. We would just constantly, you know, go through masks. We wouldn't take any risks. And so logistically, um, there was a lot to deal with, um, no doubt. What would have been the long-term impact of COVID on the film industry? Well, the film industry is one of our oldest industries and we've been around a long time. We're very resilient and we do find ways to make films because films are important in our value. They shape our, our culture, our values, and throughout history, it, it's been a great way for us to communicate and a great escapism for people that need it. I mean, you're looking at our frontline workers, our people that are there, they need to chill out. They need to watch content. We need to, as Australians, need to make content. It has to be Australian content, more Australian content on our screens. I don't think our world will ever be the same, not, not in the film business, not in most businesses. I think uh, we're going to have to learn to live with the slight chance of, of, of some sort of pandemic always looming on us. And for that reason, we would need to uh, consider that when we're shooting. But as I said, over the next 24 months, I do have a lot of optimism that things are going to return to somewhat of normality um, and the film business will thrive again, especially, you know, here in Australia. Well, yes, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, a Ruby's Choice when it comes out. Absolutely, an absolute pleasure, and I can't wait to share it with you, actually. And I um, will have some wonderful news to announce in the due course. So the film will be... Um, we'll be showing it some really wonderful places and I uh, wish I could just tell you now, but but I cannot. But the uh, the, the film is, you know, uh, regarded as uh, groundbreaking the way we deal with dementia. It's a truly, truly important subject matter. As you may know, dementia is the number one killer of our beautiful dementia. Alzheimer's is the number one killer of our beautiful Australian women. So it's a very important subject matter. 50% of all people don't know how to talk to someone with dementia. So we're really hoping that with a story like this, it'll just start a conversation around dementia. And Thoreau and Glenn, the philanthropist who has executive produced this project, he's donating 50% of all the profits back to dementia, the Spark for Life philosophy, which is a um, which is an institution that helps people with dementia. We also donated some of the, the the budget to Lifeline because we deal with bullying in the in, in the film as well. So this was a uh, this is a philanthropic piece. This is about helping people. This is about turning film into working with philanthropy and film, which is something that's never been done before. I was very fortunate as a director, I got to actually direct a woman who had dementia within the film, a real life dementia sufferer. And the thing that she loved most about her life is she was in the, in the 50s, 60s, and she was in the theatre and she loved to perform. And 
So when she came on to set that day, I just could see that little sparkle in her eye and it's something I'll never forget and it was truly special and um, I hope people will come and see the film. Well, Michael, it's been fantastic talking to you and thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Now let's talk to ComSec Chief Economist, Craig Jane. Craig, what's on the market for the week starting June the 19th? Well, the Reserve Bank certainly you know, dominates proceedings here in Australia. We've got minutes of the Reserve Bank board meeting, you know, the one fortnight ago that he elected to, to lift interest rates. So we've got that happening yes, on Tuesday. Also happening on Tuesday is one of the assistant governors, Christopher Kent, who's going to be involved in a panel discussion. Also on Tuesday, we've got a speech from the, the deputy governor, Michelle Bullock. So she'll be speaking. So we, we won't be short of information from, from the Reserve Bank. So they certainly cover proceedings you know, that are coming out on, on Tuesday. Uh, we have got the weekly reading of consumer sentiment, which is also out on Tuesday from ANZ and Roy Morgan. Understandably, consumers aren't in great, great mood at the moment with uh, the cost of living rising and you know, so higher interest rates. One of the more interesting indicators to, to be out over the week is a new indicator of employee earnings from the Bureau of Statistics. Now, it's not going to include just changes in wages, but it's actually going to in- include levels of wages. So we, we don't know much detail at present, but it'd be nice to know, you know what sort of a pay in dollar terms that you know, sort of certain industries you know, sort of getting, certain professions are getting. So we'll see you know, sort of how that one you know, sort of pans out. Um, it basically you know, sort of utilises the single-touch payroll data. So it's, you know, sort of, it's likely to be you know, sort of fairly accurate. So you know, it'll take a while, though, to, for people to get used to you know, sort of figures and uh, what, what's being produced. But, you know, so that's yeah, quite, quite um, interesting, you know, sort of particularly given the, the focus on wages. And we then on Thursday, we've got some more detail on the labour force. It will include estimates of jobs by industry. So we'll see the industry sectors and see one which are creating jobs. So that's sort of round out you know, sort of the, the Australian event. I suppose we've also got to include on Friday what we've got is the purchasing manager surveys, uh, they cover manufacturing and services. This is the flash or the preliminary uh, gauge of uh, activity. The purchasing managers indexes, they're, they're released right the way across the, the globe. Should give a good idea about you know, how manufacturing and service sectors are travelling you know, in the individual countries. Uh, so yeah, it won't just be coming out in Australia on Friday, be coming out in places like the United States, the UK, uh, Japan, you, you name it. Well, that purchasing managers index could actually do comparisons around the world, couldn't it? Yeah, it's um, certainly a good one. You know, sort of uh, sort of provide up to date readings about what's happening across across the globe. If we look at Australia and look at the services sector. The latest reading was fifty two point one, so that's the second month of expansion. Anything above fifty is indicated to, to be you know, sort of expansions. The service sector is, is growing. But uh, what we have in the manufacturing sector is a little bit different in Australia. The, the reading is 48.4, so it's below 50, and it's been the third month of deterioration. So well, the, uh, the purchasing manager at um, any particular firm you know, so should know what's going on in terms of employment, in terms of orders, yes, in terms of prices and the, and the like. Uh, and if you aggregate those responses up, you should have a fair, fair idea of what, what's going on. So services still, you know, sort of very much the focus in terms of price pressures. But the last reading in terms of manufacturing in Australia, uh, price pressures were seen as subdued. So that's, you know, sort of a, a good indication for, for the Reserve Bank. And, of course, the Reserve Bank 
will be basically trying to get any piece of information that they can at the moment just to find out what's going on, what they should be doing with, with interest rates. Well, that's that's interesting because the way inflation is tracking, it's still going quite strongly. Yeah, no, we've still got a yeah, sort of degree of strength in terms of inflation. Uh, right the way across the globe, the, the concern is about services price inflation rather than goods price inflation. And we think back to the global p- pandemic, we had a shortage of, of, of goods, basically, you know, so the, the, the factories you know, so weren't working. People were off with, with COVID and uh, uh, that was driving up prices. And what we saw is prices at a good level, you know, so translated into services inflation. So goods price uh, have subdued somewhat, but services, you know, so still unrelenting. So that's the area of focus in terms of uh, central banks right the way across the globe. Of course, mentioning you know, sort of central banks, when we look at the, the overseas markets or the overseas indicators in the coming week, uh, we can't go past the testimony by the Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell. That's happening on, on Thursday. Uh, and that's really the standout of the week. We've got some indicators in the United States which cover the housing sector. We've got the leading index coming out on Thursday. Um, and we've also got, you know, sort of over the, the coming week internationally, we've got the Bank of England deciding interest rates on Thursday. But really the standout, you know, in terms of the United States is that testimony from the Federal Reserve Chair. Uh, of course, you know, so he has the opportunity to go into a lot of detail about what's happening in the economy and um, hopefully some fresh insights about uh, where things are going at the moment, perhaps some fresh indicators that they're focused on, and perhaps some guidance in terms of where interest rates are, are going. So that'll be the, the key. And of course, that happens on Thursday, US time. So Friday morning, our time, we'll be responding to, to that information. The, the view is that the Fed might take a pause on, on rate rises, but it's still going to con- continue for some time. Well, I think what we're going to see is um, central banks across the, the globe uh, pivoting in terms of uh, the information. So might retire to the sidelines for a month or two just to assess a little bit more information, uh, but then uh, come back in you know, sort of to lift rates if the, the central bank feels as though they need to. We've seen that in Australia. We've seen that in, in Canada. And I don't think, uh, well, I think the, the what central banks are trying to do at the moment is to keep everyone guessing. They don't want us relaxed and say, look, you know, the fight against inflation is over. We've won the fight. You know, so everything's under control. That's certainly not the case. And I don't think central banks want to give that impression as well. So that's why we're likely to see uh, central banks continuing to, to harp about the fact that prices have got to get down to uh, levels of like uh, 2 to 3%. Uh, and only when it gets down to those sorts of levels, then we can start to, to talk about interest rates coming down rather than going up. But at this stage, we're still a long way from uh, anything being around 2 to 3%. Yeah, certainly, you know, sort of a lot of progress needs to, to be made. There's some encouragement, I suppose, you know, sort of late that we've seen uh, the global oil prices a bit on the soft side. And uh, of course, when you've got energy prices weakening, that you know, so contributes to downward pressure on, on prices more generally. And hopefully that affects the services sector as well. And uh, we can start to get, you know, sort of inflation rates coming down over the remainder of this year into 2024. But it has been a little bit stubborn, uh, inflation. It always is. It's always easier to get prices rising rather than, you know, sort of to restrain prices and get them back under control. So, you know, so that's the, the challenge ahead of central banks. And, of course, it's not just going to be the matter of weeks or months. It's probably going to be the matter of years to be able to get, get that inflation rate, you know, so down. 
and uh, to declare victory. So we're, we're talking possibly here two to three years? Well, um, I think what we've got to be looking at is in, well into 2024. So unless something you know, sort of strange happens, uh, but uh, we've seen other countries around the world that they can get on top of uh, inflation. We've seen that in terms of China. So um, perhaps you know, so we can learn from you know, so the Chinese you know, sort of experience. But um, their economy, of course, has been decidedly soft. And you know, so that's been uh, a big factor in keeping uh, inflationary pressures under control. And that's really what needs to happen yes, in other parts of the world. We need to see softness extend for a period of time. Uh, so um, we've got less uh, demand in relation to, to supply and therefore yes, less upward pressure on prices. Well, uh, hopefully the consumer figures might show that people are buying less as a result. Well, yes, I mean, yes, sir, that's certainly yes, sir, the, the focus when interest rates are going up. Uh, that means you know, sort of higher borrowing costs. People you know, have to make the decisions about where they're going to be putting their, their spending. And uh, hopefully it is the case. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We're having those hard discussions being made right the way across Australia and across the, across the globe about uh, getting rid of uh, some of the discretionary or non-essential spending. And uh, if we, we see a little bit of um, a pullback in terms of uh, consumer, then we're going to see the businesses they're much more focused on you know, sort of keeping prices stable and looking to to cut expenses you know, to to keep you know, sort of um, infl- uh, keep um, keep uh, profits you know, sort of under control. Well, that's that's obviously a very long, slow process, isn't it? It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, no, no, it's uh, certainly taking so, some time. But um, uh, I suppose what you've got to watch is um, have a look at um, how much prices rose twelve months ago. If you get you know, sort of point fours and point fives. And you replace those by 0.1s or 0.2 percent ESC increases, then you sort of slowly you chip away at that. So, um, and that's really the the focus for investors down the track. They want to know when inflation is coming down. What you look back is 12 months ago and see where the the high readings are. Uh, perhaps they occurred over uh, August, September, October. You get 0.4s, 0.5s, 0.6s ESC increases. And of course, if you get a 0.5 or 0.6, you know, sort of multiply that by 12, and we're talking six or seven percent inflation. If we can get readings closer to 0.2, that's that's the ideal. That's that's where the focus is. 0.2 you know, increases in prices per month. Multiply that by 12, then we start running at an annualised pace of around about two and a half percent. Well, Craig, that's fantastic, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So, what's happening in the news? Well, five industry superannuation funds representing more than $750 billion in Australia's retirement savings have frozen new contracts with PwC 
and more are considering doing so, as the sector leads a corporate push away from the big four consulting firm over the tax leak scandal. Aware Super and Care Super have joined Australian Super, Australian Retirement Trust and Hester in freezing contracts with PwC, while Rest Super and Legal Super are reviewing their dealings with the firm. It comes as a prudential regulator which oversees super funds, warns that companies working with PwC need to consider the governance risks connected to their contractor decisions. The watchdog has stopped short of telling banks who they can deal with, but has spoken to them about the need for companies and their boards to consider significant risks posed by contractors in light of the PwC revelations. The firm has been under growing fire over revelations that leaked confidential tax plans to other staff try to win clients who may want to circumvent those rules. The Department of Finance has effectively banned the firm from winning new government work by ordering officials to consider confidentiality breaches when evaluating bids, but the superannuation fund's response suggests PwC's lucrative private sector contracts are at risk. Losing superannuation work is a significant blow for PwC, which brands itself as an active participant in the industry and a leading advisor to funds, and had been working to expand its footprint in the sector historically dominated by rivals Deloitte and KPMG. Host Plus is the only big super fund to use SuperPwC as a major supplier that is not openly banning new deals with the firm or still in the process of reviewing their contracts. And Australian business and consumer surveys showed on Tuesday that storm clouds were gathering for the economy, with a slowdown in business activity accelerating and spending confidence staying near recession levels amid warnings of more rate hikes to come. A survey from the National Australia Bank that is closely watched by the Reserve Bank of Australia, or RBA, showed its index of business conditions fell by a sizeable 7 points to 8 in May, cutting off highs seen in the last year. Business confidence also slid back to negative territory and worryingly, forward orders, a leading indicator of demand, contracted in May, highlighting the risks to growth in the months ahead. The Westpac Melbourne Institute Consumer Sentiment Index rose 0.2 to 79, but the index has now been near recession lows for the last year. An aged care minister, Annika Wells, says the government had a genuine duty to deliberate a levy on taxpayers to help fund a better aged care system. The aged care minister says two decades of inaction have left the federal government in a position where all options to fund higher standards of aged care are on the table, including a Medicare-style levy. Last week, Ms Wells used an address at the National Press Club to float the idea of a taxpayer levy to fund improvements to the sector. The new aged care task force, chaired by the minister, will consider the funding instrument recommended by the Royal Commission inquiry into the sector. But an aged care levy was not a Labor election policy, and the opposition has labelled the suggestion a lazy way to fund improvements in the sector. Ms Wells said the task force was focused on ensuring older Australians have a choice when it comes to their care. The plan is to create policy settings that encourage investment in innovative models, such as village-style care, seen in the Netherlands. And Australians struggling with the highest interest rates in a decade are being warned to expect one or two more mortgage bill hikes as Reserve Bank, RBA, pushes the economy into perilous territory. A surprise, though not totally unexpected, cash rate hike last week has forced many experts to tear up their forecasts with leading analysts now saying 4.6% is on the cards by August. That implies upcoming RBA meetings in July and August could add another $150 or so to monthly repayments on a $500,000 25-year home loan, bringing the squeeze since May 2022 to more than $1,250. We now expect one further 25 basis point increase in the cash rate for a peak of 4.35% and see it most likely at the August board meeting, Commonwealth Bank Chief Economist Gareth Ord said on Friday. The risk is a 25 basis point hike earlier in July 
There is also a risk of 25 basis point rate rises in both July and August, which will take the cash rate to 4.6%. ANZ Bank forecasts, who did expect the RBA to hike in June, had already penciled in 4.35% in August, and also think there's a risk there'll be no pause in July. And Westpac will sack about 300 of its staff in its business and retail banks as part of an ongoing push to reduce its office headcount by 20%. The affected staff were informed on Thursday, according to the Finance Sector Union, and project delivering program management workers in the retail and business bank will bear the brunt of the cuts. While hundreds of employees are on the way out, it is a small portion of the bank's 38,000 staff. Westpac, which reported an interim profit of $4 billion and increased its net interest margins to 1.9% in the half year to December, said the cuts were part of an ongoing push to reduce costs first announced last year. The company has long flagged its ambition to cut its headcount by 20% compared with 2020 levels by 2024 to get costs under control. As 2022 financial year results, Westpac said it had cut about 12% of the roles that it was planning to. And Creditor Watch has told businesses to brace for a challenging FY 2024 with insolvencies already at a 10-year high and trading conditions further weakening. Leading economic indicators point to a difficult financial year for businesses in 2023-24, with consumer sentiment deteriorating and costs expected to rise further. Creditor Watch Chief Executive Patrick Coughlin said the latest ASIC data is now indicating that insolvencies are at a 10-year high. Creditor Watch Chief Economist Annika Thompson said retail volumes are already falling even if nominal retail turnover is rising due to inflation. The food and beverage industry is a sector most at risk over the next 12 months, according to Ms Thompson. And ride-hailing giant Uber has struck a deal with BP to offer discounted electric vehicle charges to its Australian drivers as it launches a service dedicated to low emissions rides and seeks to persuade reluctant drivers to make the switch to electric cars. Uber, which has set a target to phase out carbon-polluting vehicles from its platform by 2040, is exploring ways to increase uptake of electric cars in Australia, where sales for emissions-free vehicles are still lagging far behind other developed nations. The United States-based app company on Friday sent the Uber Green feature live across Australia for the first time, four years after it was launched in Europe, enabling customers to request a hybrid or fully electric car for the same price as an UberX journey. In a new deal between Uber and British energy major BP, Uber drivers and couriers using electric vehicles will receive a discount on charging at BP Pulse service stations. The program, which a, which a companies aimed to launch by the end of the year, would save Uber drivers between $0.05 cents and $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour on the cost of charging. Light vehicles account for more than 10% of Australia's output of greenhouse gas emissions, making the sector a major contributor to global warming. While ride-hailing cars are newer and have better fuel efficiency than the wider vehicle fleet, the industry has faced scrutiny in some cities in the United States, where, studies suggest, it contributes to urban congestion and emissions because of the amount of time drivers spend driving around between jobs. Ride-sharing platforms, however, believe they can have a significant impact on decarbonisation if they can influence more electric vehicle uptake. And Qantas cabin crew will be able to ditch high heels, grow their hair long and opt to wear makeup regardless of their gender, as a national carrier relaxes strict uniform rules that one union has branded as ridiculous. The style of grooming overhaul comes in response to long-held frustrations by staff, modernising workplaces and evolving customer expectations, the airline said. Men will be able to wear makeup, and women can ditch the high heels. Qantas uniforms have not changed, but the designated male and female uniform determinations have been scrapped and grooming requirements overhauled. Female cabin crew previously expected to wear high heels on long-haul flights have been asking to wear more comfortable and practical flat shoes. 
Similarly, some male cabin crew expect a desire to wear concealer and foundations. Included in the changes for all staff is the option to wear flat shoes with uniforms, as well as wearing long hair in a low ponytail or bun. All employees can now wear the same jewellery, including watches and diamond earrings. Employees will also have the choice of whether to wear makeup or not, although tattoos still need to be concealed. Hosieries will be required to worn with a dress or skirt. And the company behind the ambitious failed media organisation News.net has gone into liquidation, giving staff little hope of recouping hundreds of thousands of missing wages. Liquidators were appointed to the company, which is formally traded as Sydney News or Global News and Sport. On May 23rd last month, the liquidator notified News.net staff their contracts were terminated, directing them towards the government's fair entitlement scheme. News.net was initially led by Tony Gillies, the former editor-in-chief of Newswire service AAP. The startup aimed to launch a network of 1,800 websites associated with its domain name in 2022, intending to hire at least 170 staff in its first few months. The company had as many as 37 employees in August 2022 before it ceased operating on October 21, 2022, amid disputes with staff over its failure to pay wages and superannuation and with suppliers over payments. The liquidator's initial report lists the total owed to creditors at $1.43 million as of the 1st of June. However, it is believed only 50% of possible creditors have been contacted at this stage. And the Hunter region will be declared Australia's second offshore wind zone, a boost to the industry that energy executives say will be critical if a country is to meet its renewable energy targets. Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen in February invited community feedback on permitted offshore wind in the Hunter region. The proposal received overwhelming local support and Mr Bowen will formally declare applications to develop in the region open within a month. Opening the Hunter to offshore wind is a boost to Australia's hope of dramatically reshaping its electricity generation mix. Australia expects to replace its fleet of coal power stations, the largest source of electricity in the country, in little more than a decade, but is struggling to build enough renewable energy sources to compensate. Offshore wind projects are often much larger than onshore wind or solar projects, offering far better compensation for the loss of coal-fired power stations that typically produce more than 2 gigawatts. Australia has legislated a target of having a renewable energy account for more than 80% of its electricity generation by the end of the decade, a target that has put pressure on coal generators. A second offshore wind region comes as states and territories place a zero emission source at the heart of plants to wean off fossil fuels. Victoria is Australia's most aggressive state, placing offshore wind at the heart of its plan. In 2021, the southern state set a target of generating about 20% of its energy needs from offshore wind within a decade. The target then doubles to 4 gigawatts by 2035 and 9 gigawatts by 2040. In all, Victoria sees potential for 13 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2050, five times the current renewable generation in Victoria. The renewable goal has drawn many of the world's largest developers and local heavyweights all seeking to build offshore wind projects in Gippsland but with only five licences expected to be approved, those who miss out are expected to turn their attention to New South Wales. And Rio Tinto has stepped up its efforts to keep its Pilbara iron ore mines relevant as China looks to decarbonise its steel industry, signing a deal with steelmaking giant Baowu to find ways to produce so-called green iron in the Pilbara. The move is the latest in a series by Rio and other Pilbara iron ore majors, which have faced pressure for years over their so-called Scope 3 emissions, those attributable to customers that buy their iron ore and other commodities. While Rio has steadfastly refused to follow the lead of 
Fortescue medals and BHP in setting a target for the reduction of scope for emissions. On Monday, it signed the latest in a series of deals designed to help customers reduce their own carbon emissions. Rio said the Memorandum of Understanding would see the paired trial technology at one of Beibu's steel mills in China that could eventually be used in Australia to produce a higher value iron ore export that produces less carbon dioxide when fed into steel mills. Rio is already running trials on an in-house green iron ore process that uses raw biomass and microwave technology to produce high-grade iron that could cut the need for coking coal in the steel industry. The company said it would now trial the second route to green iron with Baowu, first flagged as a prospect in 2021, that will use hydrogen to produce metallic iron from Pilbara iron oxide ore, then use an electric melter to remove impurities, eventually producing iron briquettes or pellets that could be fed into a blast furnace or the electric arc furnaces that are seen as a future of the industry. Rio is also working with Australian steel major Bluescope on the implementation of a similar technology. Iron ore fines, effectively a thick dust, currently make up the bulk of Pilbara export. They need to be roasted in a sinter plant before entering a blast furnace, a process which produces its own carbon emissions. Direct feed options, such as lump ore or pellets, are estimated to cut about 220 kilograms of carbon equivalent emissions for each tonne of steel produced. The agreement will also see the companies look for other ways to allow Pilbara iron ore to be turned into pellets capable of being directly fed into blast furnaces. While it is possible to pelletise Pilbara fines using existing technology, it comes at a significant cost. Rio was at pains to reiterate that the technology is still a long way from turning into a commercial reality and is aimed at reducing the emissions from China's relatively young blast furnace fleet rather than revolutionising the way steel is made. And employees at three of the big four banks are flouting office attendance rules and a snap poll suggests the problem could be widespread across some of Australia's biggest companies. Average attendance at Commonwealth Bank, NAB and ANZ remains below 50%, despite all three banks recently reminding staff that they are expected to come into the office 50% of their time each month, as at CBA and ANZ, or two or three days a week on average, as at NAB. The bank's chief executives say such targets strike a balance between offering staff flexibility and promoting in-person collaboration, but employees are reluctant to attend the office more frequently, as they feel they adapted well to remote working during the pandemic and do not want to give up their newfound flexibility. Business leaders, including the chief executive CBA, NAB and ANZ, believe the office plays a crucial role in sustaining company culture and helps new starters to get up to speed and forge stronger ties with their colleagues. The SNAP poll included Westpac, BHP, CSL, Woodside, Aristocrat, Transurban and TBG Telecom. Most require staff to spend two or three days a week in the office, but CSL enforces a 25% minimum for office-based roles and TBG Telecom has adopted the rule it's not zero days in the office, but but it's not five days. And relying on a staff expert to advise firms on the use of artificial intelligence risks, boards being blindsided and exposes companies to big legal safety and brand risks, a report of AI governance in Australia warned. The report found the rapid uptake of AI technologies in customer service, marketing and sales, human resources and administrative systems has not been accompanied by investments in governance procedures and reporting. 300 corporate and technology leaders were surveyed by the Human Technology Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Nearly two-thirds, 64%, were already using or planning to use AI systems in their operation. However, only 10% of firms surveyed had an AI strategy, despite a 20% annual increase in AI investment. The report by HGI co-director Nick Davis and an AI corporate governance senior researcher, Lauren Solomon, found that only 5% or four out of 80 firms surveyed had a governance system specifically oriented towards AI models and systems. The report suggests four areas for urgent action. 
developing fit-for-purpose AI strategies, finely tuned oversight systems reporting to boards with a focus on data quality, building internal expertise and a focus on the societal and personal human harms AI can cause. The research found widespread ignorance about the use of AI. Around a quarter of senior executives and three quarters of company directors were unaware or unsure of the details of AI governance in their organisation. And the corporate watchdog has put accountants and lawyers on notice about the looming challenge of providing advice to companies about how to comply with complex disclosure rules on sustainable finance and climate risk. Australian Securities and Investments Commission Chairman Joe Longo said implementing and adhering to the broadening environmental, social and governance global framework would be on a par with navigating major tax reforms, such as the introduction of the goods and services tax. He said there were legal and reputational risks for for listed companies and directors under looming standards for sustainability and climate-related financial disclosures proposed by the International Sustainability Standards Board. I think for many businesses that will require a real change in governance mindset, Mr Longzo said in an interview after his speech at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia conference in Canberra. They're going to be quite properly and reasonably relying on experts to help guide them, particularly in the early years. A generation of accountants and lawyers, they would not have any exposure to this before. Treasury is working on a discussion paper on the new sustainable finance and climate risk disclosure rules and will tailor the rules to Australia after the global standard setting body releases high-level guidelines in the next two weeks. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Ross Sharman, founder of Energy IQ, an energy switching site for those looking for renewable energy options. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon.leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wish you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.